We are starting the show, though, talking more about something that has been, well, it's been happening for years, obviously, but really came to a head this week when police moved in on the encampment that is still on that stretch of East Hastings Street in Vancouver. Certainly, Vancouver is not the only place in Metro Vancouver dealing with homelessness, but it has been an ongoing issue. So we wanted to check in with the federal minister in charge of housing to see what his response is is to repeated calls for more funding to combat homelessness. And Ahmed Hassan Hassan joins us now. He is the Federal Minister of Housing, Diversity and Inclusion. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, no, thank you for having me on your show. I know you are in Ontario today talking about housing. It certainly is an issue that is, is an issue in all of the provinces. What was it you announced earlier today? I announced that our government has uh, almost doubled the... Uh, federal funding for reaching home, our uh, homelessness strategy, strategy uh, from a base funding of just over $2 billion to almost $4 billion. That means more supports will be available for those who are experiencing homelessness or those who are at risk of experiencing homelessness. It also means that there's more supports available to the community entities, frontline organizations, provinces and municipalities that are doing the work every day to support vulnerable Canadians, those who, who need the support services to, uh, to exit homelessness and to uh, find permanent housing. So, uh, so I was, I was, uh, it was an opportunity for me to elaborate on, uh, on, that, on those uh, increases and uh, to reassure uh, those who need the help that the Government of Canada is there and will continue to be there for them. So how would somebody in a position where uh, they are homeless uh, right now, how would somebody then access funding? They would uh, go to, we provide funding directly to, uh, to dozens of community entities, including municipalities, but also nonprofit organizations that, frontline organizations uh, that, uh, that, are, that are staffed by frontline workers who uh, support Canadians, ex- vulnerable Canadians experiencing or at risk of experiencing homelessness. And that also includes uh, a few dozen Indigenous-focused uh, 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 anti-homelessness uh, programs and strategies that are, that are for Indigenous, by Indigenous communities. So they would have to go to the Reaching Home website, which is uh, uh, embedded in Infrastructure Canada website, and from there, they would see which of those community entities that we fund through Reaching Home is closest to them, and they can then access uh, the wraparound supports, the counseling, the, uh, the all the all the supports that they need to to, uh, to 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 seek the help that they need to exit homelessness and find permanent housing solutions. This 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 is real money going to real people. That is that will and has been making a difference. And, you know, on the issue of homelessness, it's not enough to provide people with a safe and affordable place to call home. They also need, many of them need the wraparound supports that, uh, that will enable them to stabilize their lives and actually uh, reestablish uh, their desire to, uh, to, to dream again and to pursue their hopes and dreams. So we're investing in people, we're investing in better social and health outcomes, but we're also investing in better communities and the, and the hopes and dreams and the dignity of Canadians from coast to coast to coast.
Uh, Minister, I don't know if you saw the footage or, or if you've been following along with what's been happening specifically in one neighbourhood in Vancouver, uh, a stretch of East Hastings Street where there has been a tent city. Uh, police moved in earlier this week to remove uh, some of the tents from the street. The fire department deemed it was unsafe and had to be taken down. Uh, it's still very much there. It's a presence on that street. Many of the people living there saying they have nowhere to go. There's nowhere for them to, to leave that site on the street and go and find housing. Uh, the mayor of Vancouver has asked the federal government for urgent funding. Uh, have you addressed this at all? Absolutely, of course. I mean, look, the decisions on encampments are made by local governments uh, and, and local police forces. Uh, but what we have done and will continue to do is provide uh, direct support, not just to municipalities, including Vancouver, but also to nonprofit organizations that are responding every day uh, with this challenge. Do we need to do more? Absolutely. And that's why we've doubled the amount of funding under reaching home from $2 billion to almost $4 billion since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated existing housing challenges and homelessness across the country. And we have stepped up to make sure that the frontline organizations are supported. And so British Columbia alone has received over $308 million over the last five years through the designated community stream, the indigenous homelessness stream, and the rural and remote homelessness stream. Uh, Greater Vancouver has received over $196 million from the government of Canada through the designated community stream and the indigenous homelessness stream. Luma Native BCH Housing Society, for example, uh, is one of the recipients that has received uh, funding from us uh, to, uh, to, to, to provide more support and have even more impact on the ground. Down, downtown Eastside Women's Center, uh, we've, we've provided more funding to them so that they can provide more support uh, for people experiencing mental health challenges as well as providing counseling and permanent housing referrals and supports. Uh, this is, these are the transitional and wraparound services that are really important. And for both downtown Eastside Women's Center in Vancouver, as well as the Luma Native BCH Housing Society in Vancouver, uh, this is what is making a difference on the ground. We know that the need is greater, and that's why we provided more money, and we'll continue to. Rapid Housing Initiative is another program where we've provided money directly to, uh, to the city of Vancouver uh, to, uh, to, to support the building of rapid uh, federally funded homes to house the most vulnerable people in, in Vancouver. And it has been an amazing success. And then we also invested, uh, we will invest jointly with the province of British Columbia, $517 million. And we have uh, that program now online. Uh, it, it is functioning. The Canada-British Columbia uh, Housing Benefit, which is assisting Right now, 25,000 households in British Columbia with the cost of rent. These are people who, uh, who would otherwise be uh, at risk of experiencing homelessness. So we're doing everything that we can to build more affordable housing, to build more rapid housing for the most vulnerable, to provide more wraparound supports, but to also provide direct rental supplements in the pockets of 25,000 households through the Canada-British Columbia um, housing benefit, which is an investment of $517 million. 
Right. And so, but just to clarify, because it was just a few days ago, it was last week that the mayor put out a statement, the mayor of Vancouver, saying that he had reached out to the yes. government of Canada asking for additional urgent housing funding. So is, yes. is your response to that, that the federal government has already made all of these investments and has done its part? No, no, no. What I was saying was we've done a lot, but we will do even more. So the, the funding that I announced today, the additional funding, uh, obviously, organizations and municipalities in British Columbia who are designated community entities fighting homelessness, they will receive more funding. In addition to that, there is more, more help coming through the third round of the Rapid Housing Initiative. In the first round and the second round, Vancouver benefited uh, from, uh, from 100% federally funded, uh, rapidly built homes for uh, people experiencing homelessness. Now, um, the third round is coming. I have no doubt that Vancouver and other municipalities in British Columbia uh, will, be, will be helped through, uh, through that program. For the first and second rounds, we provided uh, almost $205 million to create 700 permanently affordable homes. And so we will build on that success. So more money uh, and more supports are coming. And, uh, and I, I work with Mayor uh, Kennedy, uh, Stuart Kennedy, all the time. Uh, he knows that uh, he can count on the government of Canada. We've been a very steady, predictable, and long-term uh, part funding partner when it comes to addressing homelessness and putting more affordable housing investments, both in British Columbia and particularly in, the, in Vancouver and the greater Vancouver area and the lower mainland. All right, Minister Hassan, we'll leave it there for today. I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. I just want to highlight, because a lot of people may not know this, since 2015, our government, the government of Canada, has invested over $5.8 billion in housing, in affordable housing in British Columbia. This has helped over 128,000 families and individuals in British Columbia get the housing that they need today. So a lot of progress has been made. Is there more work to do? Absolutely. We will continue to work with British Columbia. We'll continue to work with the city of Vancouver and all the other municipalities and, and nonprofit organizations. And they can count on the federal government through the national housing strategy because we've proven since 2015 that, uh, that, uh, that our investments uh, are working in every part of the, of the country, including in British Columbia. Right. And maybe it goes back to what you touched on there as well, the wraparound services, because you could also look at in Vancouver, especially since 2015, we had a years long encampment that took over Oppenheimer Park in our city. Uh, We've had this encampment on East Hastings Street. Other parks have been taken over by people who say there is no housing. There is nowhere for them to go. I I agree. And that's why we need to build more housing. So we even have an allocation of four billion dollars. Uh, through the Housing Accelerator Fund. That's coming. Obviously, I have no doubt that, again, Vancouver will more likely than not access that, that, that money. Uh, it will require uh, municipalities to step up to build more affordable housing uh, and to, to speed up the approvals and permitting and zoning uh, that enables more affordable housing. But the federal government, again, is willing and will invest in those systems improvements to make that happen. Uh, we've increased funding through the National Housing Co-Investment Fund, the, the federal program that builds deeply affordable housing in partnership with municipalities and, non-profit, and non-profits. And again, British Columbia has punched above its weight in utilizing those programs. So there's more work to be done. There's more investments that are coming. 
we know the challenge is real and the crisis is growing, but uh, we've also made a lot of progress, and I just wanted to highlight that. But we have to build on that progress, and the key to that is partnerships and collaboration, and we, we receive that collaboration and partnership in British Columbia and in the city of Vancouver. All right. Minister Hassan, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Well, earlier today, some residents of Vancouver's West End went on a bit of a tour showing people uh, about their ongoing campaign or an update on an ongoing campaign. This is to uh, have the Vancouver Park Board put the taps back on uh, for local water features. So there has not been water in these features since October of last year. One of those who is fighting to get the water turned back on and has also organized a petition is James Oakes. And James Oakes joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Uh, Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for for doing this. For people that perhaps aren't familiar with these water features in this neighbourhood, can you describe them and tell us what they're all about? Sure. These are... um uh, water features fountains uh, in, in, in the West End in, in uh, four locations. Um, one in uh, the, the Butte and Harrow, which is a, a busy uh, mini park right off Robson Street. And uh, there's one in the Barclay Heritage Square. And it's more of a, a, a conventional, formal-looking uh, fountain. And then there's one down on Pacific and Beach, which is an obelisk shape. And that was uh, donated by um, some folks uh, as a gift to the city. And these these uh, four have all uh, been uh, dry, and, and the park board is uh, refusing to turn them on. And what is the importance, then, of having them turned on? Well, these water fountains uh, this actually serve a number of purposes. Uh, it... it um, it draws people to to these parks, and it creates kind of a, a almost a meeting zone where where people are attracted to the uh, the sight and sound of, of uh, flowing water, um, and it also helps cool uh, these these zones. Uh, it makes quite a difference in in bringing the temperature down, especially when there are sh- shade trees around. And, um, well, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the playful aspect, uh, it draws children uh, and uh, old folks, you know, who, who want to just sit and, and sort of chill and cool out. Um, and I, I'll say one thing, living right beside the Butte and Harrow Fountain, the, these past months and, and weeks, it's really sad to see the little children. They they approach the fountain, and you can see the excitement, and uh, they start clambering uh, over the these uh, granite uh, pillars, uh, and and they're they're looking at their parents and saying, "Well, where's the water?" And uh, similarly, I don't know what what's saddest is is uh, either that or seeing the old folks from the nursing home across the street, Harrow Park Center. And uh, they, they'll often come across to sit in the park uh, in, in the wheelchairs or scooters. And, you know, sometimes with a family member or, or uh, staff. And, uh, well, last week there were four 
uh, folks like this surrounding the fountain, but the fountain's dry, and it's it's filled with, uh, you know, leaves and dirt and neglected. Right. And one, one other thing I just might add is that fountains tend to uh, keep away the undesirable elements from, from moving in. Kind of It kind of creates a little environment that, that I think people feel safe in. Uh, all right. I, I get what you're saying there. Absolutely. I, I'm looking at a, a photo, though, of a notice that has been put up at the fountains to explain why they've been turned off. And it goes on to say uh, that the summers are becoming hotter and drier. It says our limited drinking water is needed to cool and hydrate our population, water plants and prevent fires. Uh, then it goes on to cite a bylaw saying that this bylaw prohibits the use of water features that do not reuse water. Uh, so do you think that's the biggest issue there in that these aren't fountains that recycle their water that they that they don't reuse it well that you know that's um that's really the crux of the matter um there's quite a number of of these water features throughout the city that were uh built uh, installed uh before there was really that big a consciousness about water conservation and um since then, newer water features would have a recirculating uh, pumping system. And wh- what I think that's a bit of a red herring that uh, the park board is using uh, in that the, 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 the drinking water, it's, it's really tap water <clears throat> that has been treated, but it's used, for, for one thing, the reservoirs are really quite full right now. And secondly, this water is used extensively uh, in, in all manner of uses, for example, uh, car washes, uh, irrigation, like, for example, let's say the city's city-owned uh, golf course like uh, Langara for the irrigation. So what we're talking about with these decorative uh, aesthetic water fountains is really a drop in the bucket. So it seems to me that... The, the park board bureaucrats are being overzealous with the with this uh, this notion of conservation, not taking into not balancing it with the the, the positive effects of towns. And Jill, let me add one thing: uh, Park Board Commissioner John Cooper, he has been quite active on this and put forward a motion calling for a report on the status of these water features and what kind of measures would need to to be taken to upgrade them uh and um he he was successful just a few weeks ago in having an exception made to this uh, bylaw uh and it's uh for the spray pad children's uh, water park in stanley park at lumberman's arch so there was an outcry and uh, parents you know naturally wondering what the heck you know why isn't the water running so an exception was made in that case. So we're, we're asking the mayor to, to really show some leadership because it is a joint city and park board responsibility. So the, 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 the city and the mayor can't just sort of shuffle this aside and say, oh, well, it's park board. We want the mayor to show some leadership, you know, uh, to, to stand up for, for particularly the old folks and the kids. Right. Okay. Do you know how much water then uh, goes through or how much water these fountains would use, say, on a daily basis when they're operating? 
Well, now that's a good question. Uh, there's, for example, there's one in, in Nelson Park, uh, and I, it, it, it uh, is a, they call it a burbler. You can imagine the burbling sound. Uh, and I noticed that's shut off too. I thought it might be recirculating, but it's 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 dry, and uh, the it, it it wasn't a very large volume. I can't really give any specifics, but say when you compare it to uh, some of the water features like uh, up at say Queenie Park or at the courthouse downtown, those are really big volume. But we're talking about a relatively small volume compared to. Uh, you know, other uses. Right. Okay. And I, and I'm guessing too, you kind of touched on this with John Cooper's motion. I I suppose the solution would be if the city takes issue with the fact that these fountains don't reuse the water, is there some way to retrofit them or, or put make them so they actually do cycle the water like the newer features and we don't have that waste? Well, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, of course it takes, uh, planning, uh, and, uh, budgets, and and the motion was deferred till March of uh, next year. Um, that means the fountains are running for the rest of this season in, into the fall when they're usually turned off. And there's no guarantee that any exemptions will be made in uh, next year. <clears throat> uh, and in fact, it could be years down the, the road till, say, the two in particular that I'm thinking of, uh, Butte and Harrow. Uh, and uh, Barclay Park, uh, you know, they could be dry for years. And it, Jill, there's one one thing. Keep in mind, if you if you imagine the European cities, the, the water is flowing in all the fountains, and and it makes Vancouver really look like a bit of a joke in this respect. It's certainly not world class, as as uh, you know, we we hear so much about. All right. Well, we will be uh, watching and seeing, uh, waiting to see what happens next with this. James, thanks so much for joining us and bringing us up to date uh, on what is happening. It's been a pleasure and thanks so much for your interest. Well, there has been no shortage of health news today, whether it's in the United States, the CDC going ahead and removing a lot or most of the COVID-19 restrictions. We also heard from health officials in this country earlier today talking about monkeypox and testing wastewater, also making sure we are detecting if there is polio in wastewater as well, something that New York City has been discovering and some other places also. So we thought it would be a good day to check in with Jason Tetro, who is a microbiologist, has uh, the specialty in emerging pathogens. Jason, great to chat with you today. Hey, it's great to be with you again. Yeah, it feels like we haven't talked in a while, so a lot to catch up on. Yeah. Um, let's start with, we'll get to, to monkeypox and polio and what's happening with that. What are your thoughts? And uh, somebody emailed in to ask uh, if we could get rid of a Rivecan, which might be a bit out of your jurisdiction. <laughs> but what are your thoughts on other places really going ahead and removing the COVID-19 restrictions? I think this is just simply a matter of um, inevitability. Uh, we're finally at a point now where we have the opportunity to, you know, get ourselves boosted to a point where we can, um, even if we can't even prevent infection, we can at least make sure that we're not suffering significantly. And the other thing that's sort of really important when it comes to COVID right now is that um, we we just 
seemingly have become so um, used to having it around that trying to put in these screening methods really is just causing more headaches than anything else. And I mean, I've been doing a lot of traveling uh, over the last few months, and there's been quite a lot of problems when it comes to places like, um, I mean, in Amsterdam, Skip Hole, it was like two hours just to get through things because there was that type of health screening that was going on. So I think by removing these restrictions, it's giving us an opportunity to, you know, streamline a little bit more. And moreover, you know, if people are going to get vaccinated, they would have already been vaccinated. If they're not going to get vaccinated, well, then there's a good likelihood they're going to end up with something like an Omicron anyways. And we're not seeing the, the massive amounts of hospitalizations across the world. So, you know, it just seems like the right time. I was traveling recently as well. I was off for two weeks and I was in the UK and I was joking with somebody about it that there is no pandemic there. I I realize there is a pandemic, but you wouldn't know there Mm -hmm. was there was nothing. I didn't see a mask really. And and there weren't really there were no restrictions until Mm -hmm. at Heathrow stepping onto the Air Canada plane. And even then the crew was almost apologetic, saying "Um, it's Transport Canada rules. Here's a mask and putting it on, even though we'd been sitting in the airport with all of these people people close with close to everybody then suddenly getting on the plane it was putting the mask on but but a lot of people were also mm-hmm. commenting on that saying what what is the point of this this doesn't really seem like it's backed up by science that this is necessary here but not everywhere else i i think what's happening is that we have had these um, measures in place. And by the way, it's not just uh, Canada, it's also Germany. Um, Because I did a whirlwind tour of like five different countries in Europe, and they're all different. But in Germany, you can't get on a train, plane, or, um, you know, taxi, unless you're wearing a mask. So, you know, there are still some countries that are following along with the, um, with, you know, the protection, and making sure that there's minimal amounts of spread. Uh, but eventually that's that's going to go away. What I find interesting, though, is that in a place like the Netherlands, where they essentially dropped absolutely everything a couple of months ago, many of my colleagues and friends started getting COVID out of nowhere. And they're just like, well, how did that happen? <laughs> and it's like, OK, um, I, I hate to explain this to you, but barrier protection works. So the fact of the matter is that we are now allowing people to get infected because we're hoping that they've been vaccinated or that they've had some kind of prior infection so that will prevent that severity. Because remember, at the end of the day, we were trying to protect healthcare. That was the whole point behind all of this. Right. Right. And the reason that we're seeing issues in hospitals right now isn't because of an overwhelming number of people with COVID. There's other issues. No. Yeah, I mean, we we have had stressors on healthcare now for 18 months. And as a result of that, we're starting to sort of see other factors that are getting involved that are really causing significant problems. Um, and, and this is not microbiology by any means. This is now finally talking about human resources and everything that people were, let's be honest, Jill, they were screaming about it for a lot of months. Well, now it's finally happening. So we've really got to start figuring how we're going to get that healthcare system back to uh, back to speed. All right. Let's also talk about monkeypox and polio. Mm-hmm. We heard from uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, Dr. New earlier today. So uh, they were talking about testing the wastewater for those health threats. Yeah. How concerned should we be about, well, let's start with monkeypox and the numbers going up there. 
Well, the numbers are going up because we're starting to see uh, some spreading that's going around. What we're not seeing is the spillover that I was actually expecting myself, where we're seeing it going into people who are not within the um, gay, bisexual, and men having sex with men community, which is, in a way, a good thing. But what this is also saying is that it's still spreading around at a level that is you know, still a bit uncomfortable when you look at it from a public health perspective. That being said, the update that came out today from the UK is actually showing that not only has it plateaued, it's starting to go down, and we never actually saw that spillover. So the reality is that we may be in a point where we're starting to see the end of the spike, and we may start to see a reduction. Um, but using wastewater, and I, I just want to bring this up uh, because it, it is fascinating. I just talked about Schiphol in Amsterdam, right? Mm -hmm. They do wastewater testing there at the airport. And if you actually look at the monkeypox data, the monkeypox could be found about two or three days before you started seeing spikes in other countries. So you can actually see how the monkeypox has been spreading around the world by looking at wastewater. Hmm, interesting. Um, let's talk polio because uh, polio, yeah. we thought we were done with this. We thought it had been eradicated. It wasn't an issue. And now we're seeing it uh, New York City uh, saying that it's, uh, they have found polio in that city's wastewater. Uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada said it, it says it's going to start testing for it. Uh, how concerning is mm -hmm. that? I think right now we need to have a real good handle on where polio happens to be because we have for the most part, eliminated it across the globe. And we were only seeing a couple of cases in a few countries around the world. That is starting to change. And part of this has to do with the fact that there are unvaccinated individuals now all over the world, whereas before we had such a great campaign that it was only in those specific countries where there were problems. So what we're doing right now is not worrying for the average Canadian. It's more to get a really good understanding of what is happening with the polio virus so that if there are concerns, we can then run vaccination campaigns for those who are unvaccinated. And since this is Friday and it's, you know, useless facts Friday, wastewater testing actually started with polio back in 1939. Huh. Interesting. Um, so, and a couple of people have, have written to me. I did not know that. A couple of people have written um, asking, and I don't know the answer to this question. I'm hoping you do, saying if you were vaccinated for polio back when you were a kid, are you, yeah. are you still protected against it? Yes. Okay. Uh, polio, uh, measles, um, and, and well, actually, those are the big two that we now know that if you've been vaccinated, you have that lifelong immunity. Uh, we also assume that to be with smallpox. Uh, but uh, what we're seeing is that people may still come down with a very, very mild version of monkeypox, even though they've had that smallpox vaccine. Um, hasn't been fully proven at this point. So, you know, don't take my word yet. But uh, definitely, if you've had the polio shot or you've had the measles shot, there's almost no likelihood that you're going to get it later. My guest is Jason Tetro, microbiologist with a specialty dealing with emerging, emerging pathogens. We've been talking about COVID restrictions being relaxed in other places, as well as the Public Health Agency of Canada testing wastewater for polio, for monkeypox. Time for your questions. If you have a question for Jason about anything that is related, you can give us a call, 604-280-9898. Let's go first to Nicole in Maple Ridge. What's your question? Oh, hi. Thanks. Um, 
Yeah, I have a question about the vaccines, actually. Um, the, my understanding is that the recommendation for children over six um, is for Pfizer over Moderna because of the increased risk of, um, of myocarditis and endocarditis, which is significantly higher now than what they thought. Um, however, the recommendations for babies six months to five is still Moderna. Um, because mm-hmm. Pfizer hasn't really entered that yet or haven't completed mm-hmm. their studies. Um, I'm just wondering why BCCDC just doesn't hold back and wait till more is known about the, the cardiac uh, damage that can be done by these vaccines. I mean, that's a great question. And the best answer is it's concentration dependence. So what has happened is that when the first versions of the vaccines came out, there was a certain amount that was put in there. And so it was 100 uh, for Moderna and it was um, 30 for uh, Pfizer, or sorry, for 100 for Pfizer as well. And then what ended up happening was they started reducing the concentrations so that they could be used for children. And so when that happened, Moderna came down And Pfizer also came down. But it turns out that the Moderna was actually doing better for the younger children because they went down to such a low level that they got the um, immune response that they needed without the risk of the side effects. And that's why the Moderna is doing so well in those children. Now, I understand what you're saying. You know, we we hear about this um, in in terms of the, the myocarditis. But what I can tell you is that we actually know why that is happening. And we can measure that by looking at people's blood and looking at the immunological markers with names like IP10 and uh, IL15 and IL33. You know, and, and when I look at these, I can actually tell you whether or not there's going to be a higher risk. So I think at this point, we are starting to really get a good handle on what we need to know to make sure that we prevent these. So you may have said that to maybe BCCDC nine months ago, and it might have made sense. But now that we've lowered that dosage and we have a much better understanding of how we can monitor, we're in a really good place. All right. Let's take a couple more calls. We have Mary on Vancouver Island. Mary, go ahead. I wanted to ask... um uh, Jason, if um, infants that were born in uh, during the pandemic, uh, especially when we were asked to stay home and so on and so forth, if they will not have built up immunity, um, to, regular immunity to, to common viruses because they, they did not get the exposure. Yeah, and that's actually a really good question because, and, and Jill, I don't know if you know this, but have you ever talked to parents who have kids in daycare? Yes. <laughs> They're always sick. They're always right? sick. Yes. And that actually is part of the process of building the immune system. And it's really funny because I say that and all of a sudden parents no longer are my friends. Right. <laughs> and this is a really good point. If we have been preventing children from having those exposures, does that mean that they're not going to have that immunity for those particular viruses down the road? And the answer is pretty much yes. But here's the thing. As the immune system is developing, it usually takes them until they're about seven years old before they have a nice, full, strong immune system that they can take on into adult life. So with the pandemic having been about two and a half years, then 
for the most part, there's going to be more than enough time either beforehand, if they were born before or after, now that we're getting back to normal, to be able to encounter those viruses. Yes, it will be a scourge for parents, and I do apologize, but for the children themselves, the immune system should be strong. All right, that is good news. Uh, we have time, I think, for one more caller, and we have Joe in Burnaby. Go ahead. Hi. Yeah, quick question. It's about the polio vaccine. Is it still given in schools in their program when they get their MMR and, and all that? Or, or did we stop giving the polio vaccine at some time because it was eradicated? I'm sorry, I don't mean polio, I mean smallpox. Sorry. No, well, yeah, no, it's okay. Because <laughs> polio, yeah, we definitely do the polio. But as for the smallpox, no. And you know that. Actually, everybody who's listening can find out because look on your arm. If you have that little divot, then that means you got the smallpox vaccine. If you don't have the divot, like me, you didn't get the smallpox vaccine. Now, thankfully, the smallpox vaccine that we currently have that's, that'll be given to people for uh, monkeypox doesn't have that um, th- doesn't have that symptom, doesn't have that problem. So it's now just like a regular flu shot. But yeah, if, if you haven't had that smallpox vaccine, then you don't have protection against the orthopox viruses like monkeypox. And this is a huge problem because that's one of the reasons it's spreading so rapidly in the people who are under the age of 40. All right, Joe, thanks for that question. Uh, Jason, I want to get a quick question in. It was uh, on an email. It was somebody who says that he is bisexual, but uh, he's and he's going on vacation with some friends. They're not going to be doing anything that's extremely close contact, but he's curious if he should get the monkeypox vaccine. Yes. Um, and, and the only reason I say that is because I've talked to uh, several individuals who didn't have close contact. Um, essentially, about 10% of the cases are happening just in bars. And it's, that is about the same type of spread as you would see with something like mumps. And so as a result of that, if you can get yourself vaccinated prior to going and you happen to be in these environments where we know that it's spreading, I would very much recommend it. All right. Good advice. We will leave it on that note. Jason, as always, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Take care and have a great weekend. You too.